all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody. This is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation and startups. I've got some new podcasting equipment. So it's hit or miss. I've made an investment, Luke. I made an investment in my podcast. Let's get the ROI. So now that I've spent money, I need to start making money. So I want you to pay for some advertising on my podcast. I'm in. I love it. I've got like 30 listeners. So, uh, you know, but they're diehard listeners. I've been listening. Yeah, you've been listening. You know, so I think this could really increase your business. So I'll make sure to get with you on that and send you a one pager. Luke Harmon has been the founder of a bootstrap company, a CEO. He has exited it. One of those real bootstrap companies. Bootstrapping has like changed definition um, lately. I hear bootstrap company now means like raised under 10 million. Whereas when, when Luke was a founder and a CEO, bootstrapping meant bootstrapping no money yeah i didn't i didn't necessarily know that that was a new there's a new definition of like mm-hmm. you could raise, you could raise some money and call it uh bootstrapping but that's a thing now yeah well it's i i talked to all these growth equity guys and they're uh-huh. all like oh we like really we like you know 50 million dollar bootstrap companies and i'm like well how many of those are there you know like there you know there there really can't be that many of those it's amazing I, what you can do when you just start changing definitions <laughs> right exactly <laughs> and and, and like well no i mean like lightly capitalized i'm like well what's light and they're like 10 i'm like oh pfft. you know <laughs> like okay i get it okay so non, so like basically, like you're not underwater with venture dollars, is what you're I thought saying. you were going to say. If like, yeah, maybe they had had like half a million in like a safe for like debt or something, maybe that they would call themselves a chapter. I don't know. But so you had a you had a startup, and now you're doing some other stuff on the go to market side. But let's let's start with uh, with your story. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, we say. On the professional side, yeah. So this that that tech company was Profits for Purpose. Uh, I was the third partner there, and that was back in 2011. And then, um, yeah. So that was a B two B SaaS like true play. I can describe that company. We, it was um, we did employee giving and employee volunteering. So all of our clients were Fortune 1000, Estee Lauder, GoPro, Staples, Kaiser. And we would kind of empower their employee base. It was an employee engagement platform all around philanthropy. And so, if a dis- let's for example, if a disaster struck, we'd build the interface where employees could log in and like find a charity to either donate to or volunteer with. If they donated, it would come out of their paycheck, and then the company could see where they were donating and then match it. It could be you know they could do all sorts of gamification with it, that sort of thing. Um, 
So that was that was kind of the big like first chapter of my career up until and then we sold it in 2018. Um Wait, so how many years in total was that was that ride? Uh eight years. It was eight years. Okay. Yeah. So, and so and, and you never took money. So why didn't you ever why didn't you ever do that? That's a good question. Um I think there was I think there's this multifaceted answer to that. Um I don't think we had the long term vision of like let's let's try to well here I'll I'll fast forward to the end where we so as a bootstrapped company we were just paying people out of like revenue we made and then we'd use that revenue to go get more clients which is like an arithmetic sort of situation right it's like you get some money in you pay people but I didn't really I don't think any me and my two partners didn't really fully grasp that like Hey, if we had grown to 10 or 15 million in revenue, when you exited, your valuation is completely different. You know, like we didn't really, we weren't really, we didn't really fully understand that. Um, so that was one reason. Um, right out of college, I worked at a private equity firm. So were, were you milking it a little bit? What do you mean milking it? Like, I mean, like, were you guys like cash flowing it and making like a lot of money out of it? No, we weren't making a lot of money. We were paying ourselves. Right. right? We were we were making a living and living in San Diego. Right. But man, I'm telling you, like it was always like you gotta build more product. And that was a creative story. Like we had a development team in um like overseas at one point. Then we hired in San Diego and that got way too expensive. And then we ended up partnering with a firm that had a lot of developers in like Idaho. And that was kind of the sweet spot of like same time zone, same culture, but lower dollar, lower cost than San Diego for a development team. Um, so yeah, but we were able to like pay ourselves and make a living, but we weren't like, you know, like rolling in it. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you weren't, you, you, you didn't have, you didn't have, you weren't tricked. You didn't trick out your car. No, there's anything no like that. Advantage going on. Um, yeah, but and it would, maybe that was part of the reason, right? It was like we weren't like starving and we weren't like rolling in it. So we were kind of like, hey, this business is working, you know, like it, and let's keep. And we'd be like, should we go raise money? And we'd think about the effort there. And then we'd close another client for like 60 or 80 grand in ARR. And we'd be like, let's spend our energy making that client really happy. And going and getting another three or four of those, you know, then going and raising money. That was kind of the the decision. Were problem. you the were you the first company kind of in this employee engagement giving space? So, um, th- that story is interesting because when we started, there was probably three or four others, and then they all raised money. We were, and then like they all went through a round of like a million bucks raised. And then a few years later, they all raised about five million. And then a few of them tanked, like went out of business. And I remember that like clearly because they were our competitors, and it was like they were doing great. And then all of a sudden, they didn't exist anymore. Um, and then, uh, but two others um, in 2017 raised a, a large amount of money, like forty million dollars each. So there was there was a couple other companies. Uh, when we started, but it would, I would totally classify it as blue ocean back in 2011, mm-hmm. like 2010, 2011. It was like a t- total blue ocean scenario where like, we didn't even know who the buyer was at Estee Lauder because they didn't have a department that dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
was it in marketing? Was it in HR? And that was probably from like 2010 to 2013, 2014, 2014 companies started having a corporate social responsibility department that would buy it. And then that's where it started to like the, the market started to mature. Um, Hopefully I'm making sense. I feel like no, that was that was like really early. I was just thinking like that's really early in like the SaaS days. You know, like you were kind of a pioneer in HR tech in the SaaS days. So now that I'm thinking about timelining and and where you actually fit, yeah, HR tech. There was some of the big. It was. I think it was at a time where like there was enough familiarity with it that people understood it like there had been salesforce around and some different things you know sure like, you know there was there was uh you know like the hsm hcms and stuff but like all these different like engagement things these kind of like nuanced you know discretionary softwares to try to make employees lives better was probably you know that was more frontier back in the it day was definitely new, it was definitely like early in that cycle and i think too that's one reason why like um at that stage, I feel like enterprise software, like the price point that we had was like, let's say it was fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a year. I feel like now it'd be pretty hard to close a $60,000. Oh, dude. I mean, like, a $60,000 deal anywhere. That's good money. Yeah. And it's, and there's just more, so many more, right? So many more options. Like people are building with no code. There's all these engagement tools and things like that. But yeah, in 20, 10 to 2014, 2015, it was like, I think it was, it was a pretty unheard of. Yeah. You could have those enterprise deals basically. So like you said that you would be in market, you were bootstrapped, but then you would have to build more product. And so that, that's really interesting to me because did the competition drag you into those production cycles? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I wouldn't say it was the competition because there wasn't enough of it for the client to be like, this is what your competitor is doing. It was more that we would kind of sell them on the, the feature set. And then as they started using it, they would be kind of disgruntled that it didn't do these other things. Got it. And that was driving. We were like to fight churn. We were saying we need to, Hey, let's keep evolving the platform. Yeah. So there was a little overselling, which everyone does in software about like what the capability was. And, totally. you know, it, it really didn't come into in the workflow as seamlessly as it was. They thought it was. Which a side note about that, because the company that bought us, I I thought their strategy was ingenious for that, because if you are in a blue ocean situation, you're by definition bringing software to the table that people aren't used to. So like, hundred percent of the time there's going to be an expectation gap, right? Cause mm-hmm. you're bringing software in and they didn't know what to expect. And, and so there's just, they're going to be disgruntled with this expectation gap and the company that bought us, um, your cause owned by Blackbaud, they, they, their strategy was, we are going to, we know we're just going to accept the fact that they're going to be kind of upset with all the, the feature set isn't there yet. We're going to over deliver on the service side. We're right. going to kill them with kindness with this. We are going to stat like overstaff the service and build. I mean, they had like 45 account managers that had like personal relationships with each, each client. And, uh, and man, that went a long way and kind of bought them a lot of grace, you know, like as people were like, Hey, why doesn't the software do this or that? It bought them time, you know, um, to, to try to get the, get the software more mature, which was a cool strategy. And so you brought it through and, I remember, you know, and I tell the story a lot when you're in the room, so it's probably not going to like 
come off as magical as I think it was. But I remember when we first met, we were looking at this is a good story. This is a great story. (laughs) Great story. Um, so the story is we Wait, find- by the way, it's such a good story, not to interrupt, because it is a microcosm. Like it was such a clear <laughs> representation of like what that company was. <laughs> yeah. I mean it was it was honest. And so all right, so the story is we find profits for purpose. It fit the box of my previous firm, Canal Partners, perfectly. My, t- my my partner Todd and I, we went to uh, the Profits Per Purpose office and we walked into it and it's filled with these beautiful San Diegans that got up from their seats and started applauding us when we came in the room, which is like, dude, like, I don't like you scratched an itch that I always have, which is attention, <laughs> you know, like you, it was like, you found my way to me and my partner Todd's heart, which is immediate, instant attention and gratification. So, I mean, I was, I was about to write the check then and we sat down, we heard the story, like we're getting more and more into it. You know, the ACV looks good. You know, there's some churn, not a lot. You talked about the competitive advantage and then we said, okay, what's the plan guys? Like what's the plan going forward? And then we got into this story or you guys got into this story about going up market versus down market. And literally, like right before we, like we're talking for a couple hours, me and Todd were like outside on the other, you know, on the phone with our other partners saying like, we're doing this deal. Like this deal's happening. Um, we're going to come back with a term sheet signed. And we, <laughs> and we go in and we start talking about strategy and the plan. And then you guys just completely decompensated. <laughs> like I just remember you guys started like viciously like at, like attacking each other on strategy on what needs to be done for like an hour. Me and Todd are just looking at each other. It's like we weren't even in the room. And then they're like, "Well, what do you guys think?" And we're like, "We don't fucking know." Like, we, you know, like, like you guys got to figure this out and call us. And then you know, I emailed you maybe a couple weeks later and like, "Yeah, we're gonna sell." So, yeah, I remember that that was a microcosm because, you know, and we, one of the advantages, so with bootstrapping like three, three partners, it was like, we, we would in the middle of the day, we would put our hats on of like, Hey, I'm a salesperson or I'm an account rep or whatever. And then that, our rhythm was we would go mountain biking and then we would go grab beers and we would put our like owner hats on over beers and talk about what well, different strategy and direction. But through that process over years, man, we became like brothers and it was like, probably what you saw was like the, like brothers or cousins, like, like, like we, none of us were afraid of each other to like, we were like, we're going to push, push and to try to find the best answer. And, and, uh, that was, that was just a common way of like us finding the path forward. It was just funny. We didn't really have a filter. We were like, we're just going to like have it out right here. <laughs> it was very authentic. It was a very authentic conversation. And that's when I knew I was, that's when i that's when i knew i was in love with you and um we've carried the relationship further so you sold to blackbod which you know is a you know a big legacy dinosaur competitor in the education space Mm -hmm. um you can i don't know if you can agree with me on that or if that's going to violate some kind of non-disparagement but um, yeah and that's their strategy right they they will buy um and well, so technically we sold to your cause, which then literally like a couple months later sold to BlackBot. Gotcha. And BlackBot's strategy, it will be like 
let's say they're in 12 verticals, like university fundraising, nonprofit management, whatever, like it's crazy. They'll all be the Blackbot brand. And for like, some people will hate this brand and like this brand. It's because they, they've grown through acquisition and it's an old company and they don't really run any of them. They're all operate as their own individual things. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, it's that we got just folded into that monster. Basically is kind of what happened. So you did your time, you got paid. Now what are you up to Luke? Um, now I'm doing serendipity. This is a marketing agency. Um, let me think if there's anything else I want to say about that. Yeah, no, look, yeah, because I mean, like, so looking back on it, I mean, did you think you made the right decisions? Obviously, there's no regrets, but, you know, like, how would you have done things differently? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I wouldn't replace the, the time or experience for anything. Like, it was uh, a, a great ride. And like I said, getting to do life with people you love and, and, and that, I think from a... Um, from a business standpoint, one of the lessons was like, man, when it's blue ocean, it's only blue ocean for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. It's going to get filled up. And if we had been like, Hey, let's maximize the finances on this. Um, it would have been, cause like the two competitors, when you, I mean, this is, this is public knowledge. Uh, your cause sold for like 200 plus million. And then the other company didn't sell, but they were like a year later, they were valued at a billion. So mm -hmm. it was like, they played the, they were like, let's take advantage of this moment in time, grow as fast as we can. And I think financially had like, I think, you know, they're much bigger, you know? Um, so wait, let's put a pit, let's put a pit in that because that's like really, really interesting. So this blue ocean, the timing is now, right? Like you were there, you, you yeah. were there. So many founders think they're there. What is signal meaning you're there versus you're not there? Because I think that's super important when there's like market pull and there's like a specific time versus when a founder thinks they need to raise money because of some anecdotal data. So I think, I think that there's, there's two dangers in that scenario. One is to, I, this is purely from a, just a financial ceiling standpoint. There's two dangers. One is what we did where stay like not realizing we were there soon enough. And the other is people think they're there and they're not. So if you, if you think you're there and you're not, my thought would be is you are probably lying to yourself. Like you are excited about the opportunity, but you're not being honest with yourself about, um, um, what the market says. And to my, in my opinion, it's just really clear when you're there. And what really clear means is people can't, sign contracts and pay you fast enough. Um, I wouldn't even say like P for P's experience. It was a hard sales cycle. I've talked to other founders that they're, they're like, man, when they hit it, it was just like, they just couldn't like people were signing immediately. Um, I don't think it has to be immediately, but I think in the P for P experience, it was like, we were signing contracts in like a less than six month sales cycle. that were close to six figures annually. And, and like, we could just feel the market was growing, right? Like big companies were creating departments for this. Um, were you getting like, were you getting like inbound? Um, a lot of our stuff was outbound. It was like, because people didn't even know that that's what they wanted, right? Like they weren't searching for it. They weren't like we were, that was, that was part of it. Blue Ocean is like, there was no people, right? the market didn't exist. So we kind of went out and got it. But I think it's like, if, if you, 
if you're, if you can't grow fast enough, like, or like if you're, if you're closing business and you're like, man, we're getting slowed down because of implement, like now all our resources are going toward implementation. How nice would it be to keep all your growth stuff going and, and then be mm-hmm. able to staff so you can satisfy that. We, we used to always say, um, it felt like you were driving with two feet. Like you'd be like gassed and break the gas and mm-hmm. break. do a sales cycle and close business and be like, and you just mm-hmm. stop. Um, right. So that was like, I think if, if we were just like, how do we maximize the finances? That would have been like, that would have been time to go raise a million or 2 million and make sure that we never slowed down the sales cycle. Mm-hmm. And then I think on the other side, we, I think we just didn't, like feel like going out and bringing on board members and making things more complicated than it, they needed to be. But I think, uh, we kind of missed some of the financial ceiling with that. Was there, was there fear in that? If you look back on it, <sighs> was there fear? Uh, I can only speak for myself. I think it was less fear and more just like uneducated, uneducatedness. Got it. Yeah. Um, cause obviously people were calling you, right? Like I, we weren't the only person that came to your door. Well, I, I think it was like, we would, that the conversation was always like, Hey, we just signed a $60,000 deal. Do we, should we spend energy going and getting investors or getting three more $60,000 deals? And it was right. always just like, this makes sense. Let's go. Like, it was just like, it was, it was simplistic. It was like, why would we get investors when we could go help? four more clients you know right yeah so it it felt just like logic at the time it's it's so counterintuitive to what today people do today yeah but the um the i was shocked through the exit process not shocked maybe shocked what i learned through the exit process was so providence equity owned your cause and they bought us for a a low multiple and like four months later they sold us for like like way higher multiple you know and so i just <laughs> didn't know that like the i didn't really understand like how the i don't think we understood how the math worked you know right. of like we were just like hey let's satisfy these clients and help people and as opposed to being like oh wait it's a you could think a little you could think on a few different dimensions than that mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense i don't want to make myself sound like i was a a simpleton, but that's that. Well, that I mean, cool. if you're, you're, you were operating and I mean, like it's, it's not, I mean, product market fit and building software is hard, right. And then fulfilling and keeping customers is hard, especially in a, in a space that is, um, getting funded, you know, and I mean, I'm sure your $75,000 deals turned to $20,000 deals because the cost of acquisition, and the cost of development and the features was subsidized by investor dollars. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened was that when they raised the, when our competitors raised 40 million, the deals that were going for 70,000 went to 20,000. And then we were like, wait a minute, this is all our math just changed. What, what are we going to do? Um, so that's AC, ACV compressions real. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and I think that that ties directly to that window of the blue ocean, right? Right. It's like, if you're in the blue ocean, the reason to raise money is because you have a window where you're either going to emerge as a market leader or you're going to either be pushed out, fail, or, you know, have to 
be brought into like folded into the market leader. But it's it's going to happen if you're if you are in a blue ocean. It's not going to stay that way, you know. Right. You have a if there's mo- if there's money to be made, you are going to get compressed out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And it was interesting watching the and and, and to be honest, the other two founders at those two companies that raised 40 million they were both um like one of the guys is pro, like in probably in his mid 60s now and the other guy is maybe 50 so they they definitely like had had a few iterations in their career too mm. heading into this so they like they i think they'd seen seen the cycle a couple times if that makes sense so and and so what do you so tell us about serendipity yeah so serendipity we are a hubspot b2b marketing agency um after p4p i i stayed on with blackbot for a year and didn't know exactly what to do i started grabbing coffees and beers with other founders and a couple of them said hey can i hire you to help on the sales and marketing side and th- and that's i think that was because that's where our conversations went because uh, that's what i was drawn to but also i became really passionate about it through the sale because I realized that the number one driver of valuation for a software company is it's, it's growth, it's sales. Like the first thing that your cause did when they bought P4P was they got rid of all our software. <laughs> and so if I sit down with a founder and he's obsessed with the software and building features, my first thing is to try to educate him that like, man, who, from a value creation standpoint, you're kind of living in your own world. You need to go... Mm-hmm. You need to get validated by revenue as fast as you can. And so uh, I kind of became my soapbox. And then I, uh, and then I started, I had a few consulting clients and then kind of decided I don't want this to be the Luke Harmon show. I want to create a, I would like to build an agency around it. And uh, so that's serendipity. And then, and then we became a HubSpot agency because I did have a few clients raise um, series A. One raised 14 million, one raised... 10 million, one raised 8 million. And, and all of a sudden the work we were doing, it became too much. Like the, we, we used to work with the founder. Now we hired a director of sales. Now there's a director of marketing, but if we used HubSpot, we could kind of keep everyone in the loop. We could like leadership could work, see their dashboards their KPIs. Marketing could drive leads directly to salespeople. So we became a HubSpot agency like a year and a half ago. And, uh, and now it's like every client we work with uses. We do all the marketing and sales enablement through HubSpot um, now. So sixty um, percent of the client base is SaaS, uh, so that's the majority of it, and a smattering of like other industries and stuff. You know, it's so funny when you talk about technology because, generally speaking, a lot of these companies they come into existence because the legacy incumbents that eventually will buy them, like they say that they're winning because of their technology, right? Whether it's additional features or Mm. scalability or whatever. And the problem is though, is that like, that may be true. It's, you really can't test it though, because it hasn't been run under scale. It's like one of those that, you know, it's like one of those things. It's like, okay, you say that you've got a more scalable solution, but it's never been tested with actual like, data going through it or usage, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's never really been given a chance, even when it is acquired, because the bigger company is not going to risk putting all their dollars through your platform. There's no way. There's no way. 
and I mean, the way software changes, like within three years, whatever was best in class is going to be three years old, which is dog years. It's like decades old, you know? And so if you're throwing all your money into software, you're, you're lying to yourself that it's going to be around in a few years, you know, it's probably going to be rebuilt. Um, and you're also, like I said, you're living in your head about what a lot of the time about what features are the market needs as opposed to, I mean, cause one thing we did, uh, P4P was like we the combo of like recurring revenue and then like clients could pay for features to be built. And then it was like, now it's not an idea. It's like, you got to put your money where your mouth is and say like, we are, we are willing to pay for this feature. And now you're super willing to invest in the tech. But from like my current role at Serendipity, I'm just, I feel like I'm, I'm just constantly preaching that like, man, if you're building this thing, the number one thing is not, like you need to be investing in sales and marketing, like revenue, 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 revenue. That's what like, that's what is going to. So be. how do you balance that though? Because the, the founders and the salespeople are hearing from their customers that, oh, we just need this one more thing. Right. And oftentimes that could be a lie. Right. I mean, that like, I mean, I've seen, I've seen it been a lie several times and we've, wasted hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars on yeah. customers lying to us. Yeah. Right. So how do you, and like, do you, do you think in today's age, I mean, 20, 2011 is a long time ago. Can you get people to pay for, for upgrades and features today? Or do you think that the, the, the SaaS buyer is just not really into that? I mean, I think there's like many answers to that. Um, but I, like to li- to like rattle off a few, one of my partners had this great line. We leaned on like the third time's a charm. Like every time a client would ask for something, we'd say, hey, if you and two other clients are asking for this, we will build it for free. It's the third time's a charm. But if you're just kind of coming up with it, like we'll write it down. Otherwise, we'll scope it out. And here's some, here's like our dev rate to build it. So I think there was like some negotiation and some of it was like, playing to the heart of like a catchy line, like third time of charm. And sometimes it was like playing to the head of like, Hey, here's an answer for you of how to get it built. Um, but yeah, definitely attention. Um, cause the other side of that coin, if a client's asking for it is like, if you don't have the revenue to build it or the investment to build it, you're not going to be around anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like it's a problem that you have to, kind of it's a tension you have to live with and problem solve as opposed to like just solve it because it's because it's you can't just give the client every piece of software they want you know well no and but like you're talking about clients that are already signed and and upgrades right and expansion and that's one thing but i'm talking about getting them to initially buy it in the initial sales process in the initial sales process right so let's say you are in blue ocean right zero to one product zero to one in revenue in million. And it's, oh, well, no, this is, oh, I think this is interesting if it just did this. Um, but just did this can cost a founder tons and tons of money. Yeah. So how do you get there? I mean, yeah. I guess, we, I guess we, it's like, it's like how big of a pain point is it really? I mean, if they're not willing to get That's, in the wedge. I think the devil's in the details there. Cause it's like, if they're like, we need that feature in the SOW, you know, then let's get on the same page about that feature and exactly what it it does and, you know, and when it'll be delivered. Um, 
we would do, we would do a thing sometimes where we'd say like, look, um, you get, let me explain scope to you. It, it's feature set, it's time and it's money. Those are the three variables. And if you mess with any of those, it's going to affect the other two. And maybe we'll give you a $20,000 credit, you know? So within reason, you, you can ask for additional features, but at some point, like you need to start saying no to some features or having internal conversations. And so I think there was like, I think it's like case by case negotiation, like how you handle those. Yeah. Um, And you you know, it's funny. It's like, because I think it really comes down to what's how, how valuable is the wedge. Right. Yeah. And you know, like what is the initial, the initial wedge product that gets in there to like provide utility. And then it's, Okay, well, if you don't like it, you don't like it, right? But to your point, I really like the SOW piece. Like, you know, you know, you know, you're an early adopter. I know I'm an early adopter. Uh, that you know, we're an early stage company. So let's let's just put this in the SOW. But I don't feel like I, I, I don't feel like founders do that. They're like, oh, well, we'll just well, they're just so scared. You know, they'll just go back and they'll say, okay, we just need to build it, and then they'll then they'll buy it, as opposed to getting them to really put their money where their mouth is. I, I think too, there's a balance, like it's an art to be honest in a way that is effective. <laughs> right. Cause you'd be like, Hey, we're super new. We have nothing proven. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's honest, but it's not effective, but you can say, Hey, we're super new. The benefit for you in that is you're a major customer for us. You're going to get all my time and attention. And I really, really care what you think. And you're going to co create this product. Are you willing to go on this journey with us? Maybe we can we fly out there? Can we meet? You know, you like now you're being honest, but it, like in a yeah, okay. and th- but they're buying you too, right? Like yeah. or they see the glimmer in your eye, and they know that you can help them with their problem. Let's talk about like qualification because I think that's super huge, right? In these sales processes, and like you know, there's wor- there's nothing worse than doing a huge sales cycle realizing the person's got no po no power to make the yeah, decision yeah. like yeah. this and to buy it because. I think founders really kind of run into that a great deal is that they're, Oh, let's go demo the software. And they don't, they're not, they're just looking for affirmations on demos and they're not really getting to the no. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta, dude, I got so much to say about what you just said, but I (laughs) uh, give it to me, baby. Well, the very first thing is it has to be the founder. Yeah. in the sales process, right? Mm-hmm. And if it's the founder, the founder needs to like have some sales training. Like I think, I remember when I was like, I've watched so, so many YouTube videos on how to sell cars. Like I've never worked as a car salesman, but like I feel like the most basic sales training stuff is the stuff that like you need to learn. But then I think like as a founder, you cannot out, you cannot hire a salesperson and, and expect them to close sales under when you're under a million in revenue. And the reason is, is because the product market is all fit is always changing. And so you need to be super close to what is effective and, and iterate. And, uh, and also what you said, like the, they're going to buy, they're not buying your software cause it doesn't exist. They're buying their relationship with you, you know? And so I think as far as, and then, and then part of that, if you're the founder and you're all in on that, it's having the guts to understand that to be an effective salesperson, you need to ask, the question of like, do you have the budget? Do you have the decision making power? Do you have, you know, how do I know? Like, how do you, how do I know that you have the decision making power? Right. It's like, there's career salespeople that are really good salespeople. They will always ask, but as a founder, it's the burdens on you to be like, I am a salesperson now. Like, let me ask the hard questions. 
you know? Um, so I think the founders got to own that and like actually develop the, 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 the technical skills of, a, of being a salesperson. How does serendipity help with that? We do a lot of, we, I do coaching around it at, if to clients, but, um, that part of closing the deal, like, I almost feel like I act as like, a like sometimes it's, I feel like I'm being somewhat of a a-hole because I'm, it's like, I'm telling the founder, like, no, it has to be you. Like right. revenue is most important and it has to be you. Right. We can bring you a lead. We can make sure they're qual. We can tell you they, hey, they, they have been on the site. They've done these different things, interacted with your brand. But to close the deal, that's got to be you. So I think um, that last stage, that's going to be the founder. For us on the marketing side, I think. Um, but don't you think that there's an opportunity there? I mean, it does have to be them. 1,000%. One, you know, with I completely agree with you, but they still don't have the skills, right? So, like, what 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 is the thing? I mean, that's why I was like, I always loved um, Jellyfish, the consultant agency that just specializes in that zero to one sales, yeah. because and they kind of like like come on as like a sale or like 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 a chief of staff or something, yeah. right? And like yeah. they come and come in and like you know like pretend they're like taking notes for the CEO, but they really are just a coach and like, you know, like, and then ha- after the call, like being like, dude, do you miss this window, dude? Like, yeah. <laughs> so like, I mean, I think there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah. So wh- one of the things we do is we help build out the, the, the deal stages, right? So like, Hey, when would you consider it a deal? When would it move to the next mm. we'll jump on calls and give feedback of like, like that, pipeline qualification? Like what is this? Yeah. Help build it and then fill it and then help, and then I, I always say like, you can't fix a golf swing until you have a golf swing. Cause I feel like it's like you create, you create the deal stages and then you need to have people flow through it and you need to iterate on it and, and examine how is that working? How is that going? Is that accurate? Um, so we will, we'll help build the deal stages. We'll, we'll, we'll coach to it and then we'll help fill it. Um, and I think another thing you said a few minutes ago, I thought was really interesting. Um, from a, from a, I feel like one thing that would happen to us a lot at P4P was like, we would pitch a deal and then we would not win it. And then a year later we'd meet them again and they're like, Oh, we went with your competitor. We totally forgot about you guys. And so part of it is like understanding that being in the right place at the right time with those, those prospects is really, really important and like feeding them content. So it's, after a demo, if they're not going to close within, let's say, 45 days, what do you do with them then? How do you nurture them? How do you keep them engaged? So that when their conversation says, like, hey, we need to revisit that product, how do they not, you know, go with the competitor or try to build it in-house or things like that? Um, does that make any sense? Makes a ton of sense, Luke. Everything you say makes sense. <laughs> you make me feel great. Thank you. So what, what are you excited about this year? Besides that, I moved here. I am pumped you moved here. Been grabbing, uh, hanging out as families. That's pretty fun. Um, mm-hmm. Man, I, I keep keeping it on the professional front. The HubSpot focus for Serendipity has been incredible. Mm-hmm. Like doing all things HubSpot. Uh, we yeah. just tiered up to tier gold yesterday. That's like a deal in the HubSpot world. Um, it just means that we've done a a certain tier and caliber of works reviews and different stuff. Um, 
in HubSpot. Um, but I think that focus has been really cool for our, like, I was talking to the client about it. He was saying like, many, t- like the leader's role, man, it's just like getting everyone saying like, this is, this is what the tool we're using. This is how we're doing it. And I feel like that, that focus for us with our clients has like provided a lot of alignment from sales teams to marketing teams to leadership teams. Well, they, they did such an, like an, uh, an exceptional job building content around their product about like, this is what automation is and this is what CRM is. And this is like the best in class way to do things. This is, these are what objects are. Yeah. So, and how that works for serendipity with clients is like, as we get things going, there's so much material for the client to jump on onto and either do themselves or say like, Hey, can we have serendipity help with this? But they can always teach themselves, you know, how to use it. Um, but yeah, it's all driven toward setting up sales, the sales teams, whether it's the founders in the early days or the sales team as they build it with, with, with more leads to, to close, but HubSpot lets us like measure it and stuff. So looking into 2024, uh, where, where do you think the puck is going on go to market? I mean, we, I think, I think the, the buyer of SaaS uh, is fatigued. I'm not sure LinkedIn cold outreach works anymore. <laughs> like cold email, I don't know, works anymore. How do you think about acquisition strategies? Yeah, so I think that it is, I didn't coin this term. Uh, man, what's the guy's name? Sangram? I'm going to butcher his name. But he, he's got this whole philosophy and I love it. And he's like, hey, the, the traditional funnel is like this, where you bring people in. The problem with that is that when someone closes, the relationship ends with B2B SaaS, it's a flipped funnel. And so, yeah, you start with your ICP and then you make your product and company famous with inside of your ICP. So it's not just a cold call or a cold DM or a cold email. It's with what you can do nowadays, the technology is incredible. If you if there's 50,000 people in the country or a hundred thousand that could influence the buying decision, you can make on a low ad spend, you can target those people and make them see your brand everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it is content creation, having a brand personality, but it's just being incredibly targeted with how you put that out there. I was talking to the founder this morning. It was giving me examples where the CTO of, of the CTO at Costco had called him. And this guy was the guy with the budget. And he was like, hey, I've never heard of you, but 15 people on my team <laughs> mentioned your name. And this is a small company. No, nobody knows who this is, but they were incredibly targeted to anybody in the inf- like they would have influence on decision making power. They were putting their content in front of them. And the CTO of Costco freaking called him. <laughs> it was like, man, everyone on my team talks about you guys. Um, so I was, uh, I think that's it. It's the flipped funnel. That's like the, that's the, that's gotta be the strategy. I feel like for, cause cold calling, nobody picks up LinkedIn messaging. Everyone's annoyed emailing Google won't let you do it anymore. Like as far as cold email, um, what about partnerships? I mean, I think partnerships are incredible. I, um, they're, they're, they take a lot of effort to set up, but if you do, um, Dan Martell says it this way. You can either build a railroad all the way across the country, or you can just, if the if it's already built, you can grab and there's a train coming, you can grab onto it. So you're going to go way faster. 
you don't have to build all the rail, but, uh, but you're going to have to weigh what you give up in the process, you know, like, I, and that matters. And I think there's just a matter of capacity, right? Like I, I'm not quite sold on when that, I mean, uh, I'm not quite sold on when partnerships make sense for a company, like as a go-to-market strategy, specifically like an early stage. Specifically early straight stage is interesting because you might not have enough data to say what, what you actually have, you know? Right. But I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it. If you get the right partnership, it opens up everything. Totally. There's no doubt about it, but how much energy does it take to get that? How much will it cost that partner to integrate you? Like maybe it doesn't make sense from their angle. And then how much do you give up in the process? I think those are all, like factors to weigh. Um, but no doubt about it. Like if you get the right one, it can change your business and life, you know? Awesome. Luke, this is great, man. Thanks for so much for coming on. Dude, we, I know we could talk about a lot of stuff for a lot of time, but thanks yeah, for having time. me. Let's do a part two. I'm in. Let's I'm just, in. I want to, I want to do like a three hour Lex Friedman podcast with you. <laughs> just really just talking about everything yeah i i'm in i don't know if people would stick around to listen to me talk for i want to i want to call you like like five times a day but i have to like restrain myself i'm like he's gonna (laughs) he's gonna he's gonna get he's gonna get freaked out if i call him this much dude hit me up up. (laughs) all right you're you're open to this Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to start calling you like, I'm like, I'm like a four call a day kind of guy. I'm very high maintenance. I'm a very high maintenance friend. I'm in, I'm in charge of if I pick up or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah then I show up. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I love, I love getting your calls. It's, it's awesome. Awesome. Everybody. Thank you so much. Luke, wait a minute before I sign off. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, our website is myserendipitysales.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Luke Harmon, Serendipity. Um, yeah, those would be the places. Awesome. Let's try this again. Thank you so much for coming in and listening to the Capital Stack. We drop an episode every Tuesday. If you like it, please subscribe. Tell a friend. We're on all major platforms. You can go to davidpaul.com. Uh, took that domain name off the market. It was a couple million bucks. Um, you know, if anyone wants to buy it. And uh, we'll see you next week on Tuesday. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.